The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Power Lunch, everybody. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Max. Coming up, soaring bond yields and falling stocks. That is the setup for the markets right now. So how worried should investors be about those rising rates and the impact uh, on stocks uh, in particular? Plus, Instacart reportedly planning to go public maybe as soon as next month. Arm Holdings also in the pipeline. So will the IPO market finally, Kelly, unfreeze? Perhaps, Tyler. Thanks. First, let's get a check on these markets. If we want to see about unfreezing, we're going to have to see more green on this screen. We have six points of green on the Dow right now, but the S&P is down four and the Nasdaq is down 40. Uh, All three averages are down more than 2% for the week. So that's the larger trend here. Shares of Bloomin' Brands, the parent of Outback, are gaining today as activist firm Starboard has built a 9.9% stake in the company. The shares uh, you're seeing popping about 6.5%, and they're up 18% over the past year. And the stock you just heard about, everyone's talking about it. What are they going to say? Palo Alto Networks. They're reporting after the bell first time in three years. An S&P 500 company has done that, I guess, on a Friday. Pretty rare. Are they trying to hide bad results, showcase good ones? Was it just a scheduling conflict? We'll find out more in a couple of hours and get a little preview coming up. The other big story catching Wall Street's attention are rising bond yields. The 10-year yield hitting 4.3% this week, highest since last October. Actually, about the highest in 15 years, really. So what does it signal about the economy and how should investors position? Jim Bianco is president of Bianco Research. And Ron Insana is a CNBC senior analyst and commentator. He's also chief market strategist at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Jim, I'll just start with you and please help us make heads. In, is this a once in a lifetime chance to buy higher yields or no? Well, I think yields are going up because the market is not completely convinced that inflation is behind us. Now, it's not worried about 8, 10 percent or Zimbabwe inflation, but it is worried that we might be in a 3 or 4 percent inflation world. And if we are, then you could be looking at bond yields that will be settling in closer to 5% than to 4%. And that's what you're seeing with the 10-year yield and with the 30-year yield. They're starting to drift towards that target. And ironically, it might be because the Fed has backed off of of tightening that the bond market is starting to get nervous. If the Fed's not going to fight the inflation fight, then it's going to fight the inflation fight by selling off bonds. So I think that that's the big picture that's what's been driving bonds for most of the last several months as they've been moving higher. Ron, I sense you don't agree here. Um, not entirely. I don't disagree fully. I also think that the bond market has not ruled out the possibility the economy will avoid recession completely and maybe accelerate rather than decelerate whether or not inflation goes back up. You look at the Atlanta Fed GDP nowcast, 5.8%. But they've been high forever. They've been high. And look, they could be 2 or 3% high at 5.8%. You're still coming at, you know, 3, 3.8%. Uh, percent annualized rates of growth in third quarter. No one expected that. Everybody was looking, myself included, a couple of weeks ago for sub 1%. That's not happening. 
But let me, let me get back to Jim's point here, mm-hmm. and that is that that maybe the inflation fight isn't done, and that and that we're we're not going back to a two percent inflation rate. We're going to a three or a four percent inflation. Doesn't that suggest that the Fed will have to do more? Will have to raise longer, keep ra- raise more, keep them higher longer? Something I think you've said they don't need to do. Yeah, I, I think if it's a three percent inflation world, they don't have to do more because you have two hundred basis points, two hundred and fifty basis points of of real interest rate built into that, which is a relatively restrictive policy. And, and if we, it's interesting, Tyler, if we go back, you know, a decade, right, where we spent 12 years trying to get inflation above 2%, and then mm-hmm. the Fed started talking about average inflation rates. If we were at 3% for some period of time, if you X out the pandemic and, and, and the immediate response thereafter, you'd kind of be where the Fed wanted to be in the first place, which is having an average inflation rate where it's been historically at about 2.5%. So I think, you know, I think there's more growth being built in, less recession being built in. Inflation, I'm not sure about. I still think, with the exception of a couple numbers in the next couple months, it may be sticky. It's still coming down. Jim, I guess we have to talk about, you know, on the short end side of things, it's really just about where the Fed, what the Fed does with rates, how long they leave them high, when they start cutting. You think Jackson Hole will shed some light on that? Well, it should. That's kind of the big speech of the year where Chairman Powell or whoever the Fed chairman is, kind of gives their long-term outlook. Remember, a year ago was that famous eight-minute speech where it's been dubbed the will-be-pain speech, and subsequently there was never any pain, and unemployment rate came down and stock prices went off. Uh, but I do want to come back to something that Ron said. I agree that a part of the equation here is that the economy is doing very well, and you're seeing that on Wall Street. They're all throwing in the towel on their soft landing and recession forecasts, and they're upping their forecasts. But that could be fostering, too, to an excess demand or extra demand that is pushing in prices higher, which is inflation. Um, and so the market, I think, is getting more and more worried that we're going to be in, a, you know, if you add real growth plus inflation, a high nominal world. And that's what these interest rates are reflecting. Furthermore, uh, if you just take a look at uh, five per- or four or five percent interest rates, if the economy is accelerating, it's a big sign that these rates are not restrictive. We could go through models and say, hey, look, they should be restrictive. It's 200 basis points above this or that. It's not because the economy is accelerating and it's telling us in real time that it's not hurting. And the other thing, though, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the fact that the economy is less interest rate sensitive because you're sitting on a three and a half percent mortgage and not moving. Corporations termed out their debt, bought, you know, issued long term debt at much lower yields. Refinancing risk, except in commercial real estate, is not that large. The other thing I point out that we haven't discussed, quantitative tightening has been going on for over a year now. Mm-hmm. The Fed has reduced its balance sheet by over a trillion dollars which means they are not a net purchaser of U.S. Treasuries. And so when you look across the curve, with the Fed not being in the game, that's going to just, by definition, put some put, upward, put, pressure, put upward on pressure on rates. Because yeah. you're taking the biggest buyer out of the market. Yeah. 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 Would. And I, look, I don't think we're out of the woods on a couple different fronts. When you look at China, when you look at Russia, when you look at Argentina, there are some external factors that if we have a summer like 1997 or 1998 or a fall like 1997 or 1998, some of this could reverse itself very, very quickly. Rates would come down. The benefits after an event would redound to the United States. We'd get lower rates, the Fed would stop raising, and we'd have some concerns about some sort of global, not quite systemic, but global financial event that changes the outlook a little bit. Jim, how do you factor China into your thinking? Well, it it factors in in a couple of ways. They're the second largest owner of Treasury securities behind Japan. Uh, Their problems have been accelerating their selling of Treasury securities, and I suspect that 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 will continue. 
And until they get a handle on what's going on, I think that you're going to see more repatriation of dollars back to China into in the form of one. And so that's going to be a problem. And I also might throw in Japan is also kind of the same thing. Their interest rates are going up big in Japan right now on the long end of the curve. They're the largest owner of treasuries after the Federal Reserve. And if they're getting more attractive rates in Japan, they're going to sell U.S. treasuries and they're going to keep their money at home. So all the big buyers right now have big incentive to be sellers of treasuries. And that isn't going to turn around anytime soon. Although households could pick up the other side of that. <laughs> well, given that the yields that you see that are attractive to households and institutional investors who for years have been starved right. for yield, right. insurance companies, banks and others. Look, the one thing I would say that where I would disagree with Jim is if there's an event in China, whether or not China wants to sell, they may not be able to t- sell U.S. treasuries. And everybody rushes into the safety of the U.S. dollar and U.S. treasuries if you have a global financial market or economic event. And so, you know, look, Japan's 10-year yields are 60 basis points. So they may be relatively attractive at home. They're not attractive on a global basis. And so you're not going to see people necessarily rushing to buy Japanese bonds when you get 5% here. All right. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Jim Bianco, have a great weekend. Ron Asana, same to you. Thank you. Good to see you. You too. All right. Uh, could the sudden rise in yields cause another problem for the regional banks? Leslie Picker has some exclusive data on the potential risks. Leslie. Hey, Tyler, they seem to already be having such an impact. The jump in yields having an adverse impact, in fact, on bank capital, particularly for regional banks at a time when they really can't afford it. Since the end of June, the move in the seven-year yield has resulted in a 60 basis point hit to aggregate capital ratios for the three dozen banks between $100 billion and $700 billion in assets. That's according to exclusive data we commissioned from Goldman Sachs on this very topic. The move in the seven-year amounts to an estimated dent worth $12 billion to capital just in the last six weeks in an a 10% impact to book value of the aggregate group, Goldman said. The impact is more pronounced for regionals than the largest U.S. banks because they manage their securities portfolio differently. Higher rates, though, all across the board have been impacting the liability side of the balance sheet, causing banks to pay out more for deposits or risk customers putting their funds in higher-yielding areas elsewhere. Think money market funds. Meanwhile, banks are tightening their lending standards, which could, coupled with higher deposit rates, cut into their margins. And, of course, the largest elephant of all in the banking industry right now is the prospect for additional regulation with looming capital requirements, at least those that have been proposed, that are much higher than current levels. And that's specifically for that $100 billion to $700 billion range. And then there's also these loss-absorbing rules that are coming down the pike potentially within the next month or so. So altogether, this helps explain why the KRE down more than 6% week to date. It's been a very uh, difficult week with all these headwinds, Tyler. Although you also think, well, it's not just the regional, but you know, I don't want Goldman to take a tally of its own hit to book value or anything like that, Leslie. But I don't think the big banks would escape some of this, even though they have oh, sure. you know higher uh, net interest margins and things like that, so it's it's been surprisingly quiet uh, on that front, really. And it's um, I don't know. I guess that it's just not as acute a problem as it was a couple of months ago. But the the funding issues still remain. Yeah, the yields in and of themselves, that seven year yield that I pointed to, that's primarily the the larger impact, the outsized impact is for the regionals. The larger banks, they do tend to take a little less duration in their securities portfolio. So some of those have rolled off uh, more organically, whereas, you know, the regionals, they they do tend to have a little bit more or they did strategically choose to take a little bit more duration. So they're seeing more of an impact from that. But uh, to your point, the larger banks are the ones that are going to see an outsized Mm -hmm. impact from this regulation. They're the ones, uh, you know, according to the to Basel three, they're going to see a higher uh, 
capital requirements. That, that points me to the sort of the nub. If, I, if I'm saying what's the takeaway here, the takeaway to me is this. Banks have seen their, and particularly mid-sized banks, may have seen their capital dented because of uh, higher re- uh, interest rates. And there may be more government regulation boosting capital reserves here. The two of those things taken together are not good news for mid-sized banks. They're not because the the higher the capital buffer you need to have and and the more you know, because if you have a dent to capital, you need to find another way to, to raise that capital. Right. That comes from, of course, loan making, which is a profitable business for these banks. So you don't want to see, you know, your ability to be lending uh, crimped by some of these actions, which, of course, is what we are seeing right now, which is really by design from the Fed. But it's the banks that are, you know, kind of the ones that are in the middle of it. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. Leslie Picker reporting on the banks. Interest rates will be a hot topic, of course, uh, next week. At the Fed's annual summit out in Jackson Hole. They know how to pick a nice place, those folks on the Fed. CNBC will be there with live coverage. That will be Thursday and Friday next week. Coming up, the not-so-magnificent seven. The collective value of Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, NVIDIA, and Meta. It's down by $632 billion in August. So is big tech still the bet for the market, we'll ask. Plus, it's the Wild West in this market with some big moves today. The good, raw stores up 5%, leading the S&P on a strong beat. The bad, deer, down the same amount, 5% drop on earnings, uh, with investors asking, has the tractor boom peaked? And the downright ugliest key site down almost 15% today on a disappointing outlook and getting price target cuts at Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley. Stay with Power Lunch. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Stock market rally this year is largely attributed to a handful of technology companies, but uh, that party seems to be coming to an end, or at least over the past couple of weeks it has. Out of the so-called Magnificent Seven, five stocks are down more than 10% from their annual highs, led by Tesla. That one is down more than 30%, and with bond yields reaching multi-year highs, and with the uh, higher-for-longer narrative uh, at play in the interest rate world, how should investors position their portfolios from here? Joining us to discuss is our own Mike Santoli uh, and Mike Bailey, Director of Research and Investment Committee Chair at FBB Capital uh, Partners. Uh, Mr. Bailey, let me ask you first, uh, what do you think? Is this an enduring slide in these stocks? Only two of them are not down more than 10 percent, Amazon and Alphabet, um, but they're close. 
That's right. Uh, it's a tough spot here. Uh, so, you know, we've had this massive run here the first few months of the year. Uh, we did see three of these names really outperform significantly, and in particular, sentiment really blew up. Uh, I would kind of take the group down to a smaller group of, call it three amigos. So you've got Tesla, NVIDIA, and Meta, just massive increases in sentiment. Um, you know, it's, it's almost sounds kind of childish, but the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So we've really seen a lot of compression back uh, in terms of sentiment falling for those three We've seen sort of a follow-on effect for some of the others, but I really think it's that sentiment driver. It can, you know, run up really high quickly, and then you can also see a reversal. Uh, you know, looking in terms of what investors should do, I think these are generally good companies. I think you can pick your spots. Uh, the one name that jumps out for us, it happens to be, you know, more of a modest uh, correction territory is Amazon. Compelling growth. Interestingly, you can buy Amazon for the same multiple as Costco. So for us, that's pretty compelling. You know, two retailers out there. I think Amazon's got the lead in terms of long-term growth. So I think there's some of these names you can still own. Can Mike uh, Santoli? Can the market go higher if these guys don't? Uh, the math becomes pretty tough if they don't participate at all, or especially if they just keep going down. But a few observations. One of them is you talked about the declines, peak to trough from the, these uh, stocks. Uh, the overall S&P is down five percent. Mm-hmm. So. Clearly, it's not going down dollar for dollar. And yet we're talking about correction here. Well, yeah. Some some people are. And this is not by any stretch a correction. I mean, it may be for those stocks that have gone down 10%. That's right. I mean, it's not yet, broadly speaking, in in any appreciable way. Now, uh, I'll say the NASDAQ 100, which essentially is dominated by these seven stocks, was uh, a 36 percentage point advantage year to date one month ago over the equal weighted S&P 500. Now it's 28% Hmm. percentage points. In other words, it's given back six percentage points of outperformance that had built up into mid-July to now. So has that changed the overall leadership complexion of the market? Or is it just really that's how where more of the air was underneath these stocks? We hit August. The overall market was a little bit stretched. Uh, we are definitely dealing with at least what the implications are of higher uh, bond yields, but also a faster economic growth. These aren't the ones to own if you think the economy is reaccelerating. So I think all that's in the mix, um, but it is very difficult for the S&P 500 to perform without them stabilizing or, or, or rebounding. Dan Niles, uh, the tech investor, tweeted yep. an hour ago, bond market stabilizing. <laughs> covering half our shorts today, expecting a short-term bounce next week, doubling meta position, buying Apple, and so forth. So, Mike Bailey, how important are stabilizing rates to the next leg of this move here? I think it's pretty relevant. I mean, if you look at really the overall market correction and the Magnificent Seven uh, kind of takedown, uh, that's coincided with a rise in rates. So I think rates are definitely critical to the conversation. Uh, if you get something unexpected out of Jackson Hole next week, if rates continue you know, moving north, uh, that could be a challenge for you know the broader market in general and some of these big tech companies, which are pretty rate sensitive at this point. Our guess is we're not going to see that significant move up in rates from here. We saw a little bit of give back even from yesterday. Uh, but, you know, Fed's kind of a black box. We're going to have to wait and see uh, what comes out of uh, Jackson Hole next week. What would you add to that, Mike? I would. Well, you know, Kelly, you are one of my several uh, great adversaries in the debate about how <laughs> rate sensitive growth stocks are. Uh, I'll just point out that th- that they kind of detached coming into this year. If you looked at the Treasury uh, market versus uh, Nasdaq 100, obviously it matters. But it's not, to me, the one thing that matters, especially when you're talking about the super profitable large companies like the Apples and the Microsofts. I would say from observation, it feels to me like it matters minute by minute more than it matters month by month. That's exactly right. If that makes any sense. No, you're right. We're locked into a point where the the main swing factor in whether I'm going to take more or less risk in stocks and in big growth stocks is 
are yields going to become unhinged to the upside or not? Right, right. And so that's why you do get that tactical relationship. But if you go over a longer period of time, I mean, I, I looked at the last few times the Nasdaq 100 traded at like 25 times earnings, which is where we are. And the 10-year yield was anywhere from the current level to 1.5% to 5%. And then if you want to go back to the late 90s, then, you know, all Even the math higher. doesn't work, basically. Yeah. No, so. it's true. All right. Mike and Mike. Mike Santoli. Mike Bailey, thank <laughs> you very much. And you can get more of Mike Santoli's market thoughts tonight at 6 p.m. on Taking Stock. Mike and Josh Brown will discuss all the issues facing the markets. And it says right here they're going to have fun doing it. Is well, that, it looks like true? we were having fun in Look that at that fun anyway. there. That is, that is two what guys having debate? fun. Can we'll you, see. Can you, can you give me a Well, tell me what Josh is, is going to be wrong about, <laughs> and I'll tell you what we're going to do. What you're going to be right about. <laughs> right. Coming up next on Power Lunch, some headwinds for wind turbines. Wind turbines, not turbines. Uh, the offshore wind industry is navigating uncharted waters, inflationary pressures, and rising rates pushing up overall costs. Details are next. And further ahead, college tuition costs are growing well beyond what many families can afford. It's driving many Americans further into debt. We've got the details when Power Lunch returns. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Power Lunch, everybody. Time now for our ETF tracker. This week, we look at gold funds. Despite the rising yields and the concerns about China, gold is down about 1% this week. And the gold ETFs seeing net outflows of $373 million over the past week. This according to our partners at Track Insight. The gold miner funds from iShares, Sprott, and VanEck all down 6% this week. More information available on the FT Wilshire ETF hub if you want to go and learn more about those gold ETFs. Kelly. All right. Pretty much every business and every industry has been grappling with the impact of inflation. But with the offwind industry, it's one of several issues as it tries to meet ambitious production targets. Pippa Stevens joins us now with more of the headwinds. <laughs> And I mean, it is surprising, Pippa. Like, the, tell us what's going on here. Yeah, well, I see what you did there. <laughs> so the offshore wind industry is really right now at a turning point because after years of falling costs, which made it competitive with other forms of energy, prices are now on the rise, so much so that some projects are no longer economically viable. The problem is that increased costs along the supply chain, that includes everything from raw materials for turbines to specialized installation, is bumping up against the rising cost of capital. As Aaron Barr from Wood Mackenzie told me, it makes a lot of projects uncompetitive. Developers are trying to renegotiate contracts with some walking away entirely. Now, this creates a big issue over the long term because pinched profits means companies don't necessarily have excess capital to reinvest in supply chains. And even if they do, they might not want to jump in given an uncertain market and delayed timelines. And so we have these really ambitious goals for offshore wind, but nobody's reinvesting to build the supply chains. Hmm. Also want to ask you about shares of Hawaiian Electric. 
What's yes. going on there? So that is jumping back today up about 13%. That comes after the company said it is not, the goal is not to restructure, but to endure as a financially strong utility. So they said they are seeking advice from experts, which is, you know, due course of action in a situation like this. This, of course, after the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this week that they were uh, seeking out restructuring advice. Yes. By the way, <laughs> Sort of off topic, but, you know, Hurricane Hillary at the same time. What are, what are you hearing in terms of the potential damage? This one could hit Sunday or Monday. It sounds like rains are going to be equal to years worth of rain in some parts of the, the southwest and maybe what Los Angeles could be, mm. you know, directly affected. It, it seems to have come. When do we have Pacific storms? This is the dry season. Well, yeah, exactly. And this is, a, once again, these indications of, you know, dislocations in the extreme and the frequency of these types of weather events that then threaten all of our crops. You know, they threaten, threaten refiners out in California. Yeah. Mm. And so I'm not hearing too much on that quite yet. I think there's still a lot of focus on what's going on in Hawaii right yeah. now. But I mean, all of these all of these mega events just ruin infrastructure, ruin lives. And it, it's, it's very devastating to see how they're increasing in frequency. And you look at Hawaiian officials, you know, we saw the resignation, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. of was it the fire chief who didn't yep. put off the sirens today. But again, when's the last time they dealt with a wildfire? Like so when when you start talking about other, you know, when's the last time California dealt with a hurricane? I mean, there are people here. Hopefully everyone has a disaster readiness plan for literally every possibility you could think of at this point, because that's what the headlines seem to bring. And us. I think the issue is that if you want to harden your grid, that costs a lot of money. So in order to do that, you have to go to a regulator and get the approval to increase your rates. And people don't really want to pay higher rates. And no. so you are at a little bit of a difficult situation where you need all of that money to do that. But that comes with consumers feeling pinched. And yeah. so the regulator, you know, I spoke to one person who said the regulator is, is equally to blame here because they also play a role. And I was talking about whether For or not, Hawaiian Electric in yeah, particular, it, that's Exactly. An and also, point. you know, governments don't want to shoulder these things either because no. if there's an issue, then they don't want to be the ones They don't want on the, the ratepayers who are taxpayers who are voters to get angry at them for greenlighting a rate increase. Great point. That, uh, that may ultimately be absolutely required. Exactly. Pippa, thanks. Appreciate it. Let's get to Leslie Picker. She does it all. She does the banks. <laughs> she anchors. She does, like, she's got a news I'm update. Gonna, Here she I'm is. I'm going to tell you what's going on around the globe, too, Tyler. Here's your news update at this hour. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has deployed a team, including an electrical engineer, to investigate the origins of the catastrophic Maui wildfires. This, as local power company Hawaiian Electric, faces growing scrutiny of its electrical poles and whether they may have triggered the fires. U.S. officials say nearly 500,000 Ukrainian and Russian troops have been killed or wounded since the start of the war. Russia's military losses are around 120,000, while Ukrainian deaths are estimated at 70,000. Russia's military is larger than Ukraine's with three times as many troops, but officials warn it's difficult to estimate as Moscow undercounts its war dead and Kyiv doesn't disclose official figures. And the New York Times reports former President Trump will not participate in next week's Republican debate hosted by Fox News. Instead, he plans to sit down for an online interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Tyler, I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Leslie. Ahead on Power Lunch, the IPO shopping cart is filling up. We've seen the Nasdaq and NYSE battle it out for listings. Now a major IPO set to kick off the fall. That one is next. Welcome back. Instacart is reportedly planning a September IPO. Finally. And it could publicly file its plans as soon as next week. It could get a glimpse into those financials. Been a long time coming for the grocery delivery startup. 
Could it crack open a window for other listings more broadly? Deirdre Bosa has the details in today's Tech Check. We've been talking about it all year, Deirdre. Them and Birkenstock. They're gonna I feel like I've been talking off. about this. I've been covering this company for years and years. Always this question of will they or won't they? And keep in mind, this is a company that has been around for more than a decade. It's become a household name, and it's raised billions of dollars in venture capital. So it has taken an unusually long time to come public, as Kelly said. And if we do get the IPO filing as soon as next week, we will finally learn how the business model works. Instacart is essentially an intermediary. It connects customers with personal shoppers who shop and deliver groceries from local stores. It sounds asset light, but other public gig economy companies like Uber, DoorDash, they have proved that it's actually really hard to profit from such a model. Instacart, however, may have something that they don't, and that is an established higher margin advertising business. If you look at who's actually running the company, it's a lot of ad execs poached from Facebook, Fiji Simo. She was one of the highest ranking female Facebook execs, and she took over for founder of Porva Meta in 2021. Before her, they had an former Amazon ad chief in charge of all of the company's revenue. Now, Uber and Dash, they're just starting to chase this model, but investors, they like it. So will they like Instacart's lead in advertising? And more importantly, will it help separate Instacart's financials from other gig economies companies? We could soon see. On the other hand, though, competition has only intensified for Instacart with gig companies and huge retailers like Walmart and Target vying for a piece of the grocery delivery pie. However, Wall Street responds, though, guys, to the filing and the eventual IPO will be significant for the IPO window. Meantime, Arm could also be filing as soon as next week, and it's expected to be the largest this year. It could all be happening, Kelly and Tyler, after a long freeze, a long pause. We'll see, though. Uh, the Nasdaq, right, hasn't exactly been off to the races over the last few weeks. So it's interesting timing if we do get these ideas. Deirdre, how does the advertising piece fit into the puzzle here? Why, why is it a cash generator for Instacart? We don't know for sure, but... Let's take Amazon's advertising business, right? You could imagine a similar model. You search for things, and companies can pay to have their product listed higher above. That's essentially how it works on Instacart as well. You're shopping for milk, and milk brand puts its product, pays to have its higher its product higher uh -huh. up on that search um, page. So we think it's high margin if you look at Amazon, right? This business grew so quickly out of nowhere, but we do not know. We don't know what the margins look like, but we do know, and I've been covering this company for a very long time, that they've been ahead of this. They've been building out this business as well as an enterprise business for grocery companies, grocery retailers that don't want to run their own sites. So that is something different than what we've seen from the likes of Uber and DoorDash that we know how their model works. A lot of the money, a lot of the losses come from, you know, their marketing and how they pay their drivers and what they charge their customers. So so let me ask you this. Did the management that you refer to the person who came in from Facebook was an advertising related uh, individual who replaced the founder? Was she brought in in part to take this company public? I assume she must have been. Yes. The short answer, I don't know that they would say that so specifically, but it got to a point where our poor Mameta, he's the one that founded the company. He was CEO for a very long time. He said that he saw the opportunity. I remember interviewing the two of them together when this change happened. He said that she's the person to lead the next leg of this journey. And it's, you know, they've always said that they were going to go public. It wasn't you know, important for them to do so at any particular moment. They would go when they are ready. But I should also mention their CFO comes from Goldman Sachs. He spent a long time bringing companies public. So they do have the people in place. It's whether the markets and investors are willing to uh, accept this company for how much. Oh, that's very interesting. That's an interesting piece there as well. Deirdre, thank you as always. Good to see you.
Thanks. Still ahead, back to school blues, the price of higher education rising to levels more than most average families can afford. Uh, that's not exactly news, but we'll reveal the latest college board figures and ways you might be able to help cover some of these astronomical costs when we return. I will be listening very carefully to this. Well, you probably know this already. Paying for college is becoming more and more of a challenge for many families as tuition and room and board climbs north of $50,000 on average for private schools and much higher for many. Sharon Epperson here to discuss. I am all ears. I am on receive. <laughs> well, Tyler, you know, the average sticker price for college has been rising, but most families don't pay the full price. Tuition fees, room and board averaged around $23,000 at a four-year in-state public university for the 2022-23 school year, according to the College Board. Going out of state cost almost double that amount, more than $40,000 on average. And a private college averaged over $53,000. Now, that doesn't even include books, transportation, and other expenses. At some private universities, the total cost of college is now more than $80,000 a year. Yet a new report from Sally May finds the amount of money that families actually spent on college costs last year was about $28,000, up 11%, though, from the year before. Families took out loans and borrowed money to cover about 21% of the cost. About 29% of college costs were covered by scholarships and grants, free money. And meanwhile, parents and students' income and savings covered about half. Tapping 529 college savings plans, leveraging private scholarships, and appealing for more, more financial aid, if you need it, are some ways that can help families pay for the rising costs in college. Why are the costs rising? So you just cited a number that said that the average family is paying 11% more year from year, just in one year. All right, now inflation's 5%, 4%, whatever it is. Why is that? I think in some cases, what the financial aid experts are telling me is that, that colleges are not having as great an endowment. They're not having as much money um, there coming in. And so that is something that is impacting them. And because the markets have hurt them or because donorship has not well, kept I Well, th I think it's I think it's a combination of both. And I think they're going elsewhere to find people who can full pay. And that's why we're seeing a rise in international students in a lot of universities. They, they need students who are going to be able to pay the full sticker price, but mm -hmm. most American families, thankfully, don't have to. I think the idea of paying from out of pocket from your own savings and such is something that people say that they don't want to do, but they're also not doing things that are tax advantage ways for them to save. We talk about 529 plans a lot, and only 30% of families use 529 plans to pay for college and, and less than $8,000 on average. So there's not a lot of money going into some of these vehicles that can help people put, a, put that money away. Many families say they just don't have it to, to Final save. quick question. Uh, maybe many colleges are space constrained, but couldn't they help their finances if they expanded their ad admissions? In other words, let more kids in particularly if in the case of a state school, an out-of-state uh, admittee who is uh, going to pay a higher price, double the in-state. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's a lot of focus on the high, high cost of private colleges and universities mm -hmm. and not looking at there are so many colleges and universities that, that even now, as students are coming to campus, may be trying to raise their enrollment. Their enrollment is not where they want it to be. So in that case, families can be very proactive in negotiating what they want and what they need 
financially for their child to go to school. But again, if you're looking at a certain group of select elite colleges, mm -hmm. that may not happen. Sharon, thank you. Sure. More reassured, less reassured? About the same. About the same. About the same, <laughs> yeah. Talk about a false start. Gina Sanchez and the Flynamic duo are getting dragged down in our CNBC stock draft standings Ooh. by their top pick this year, which was PayPal. Does she want a do-over or is she standing by the pick? We'll ask Gina in an extended three-stock lunch right after the break. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis now for a market flash on Palo Alto Networks, which reports results after the bell today in what some are calling a bit of an odd move. Christina. Well, the company announced this uh, their Friday afternoon earnings date on August 2nd. And ever since then, the stock has actually dropped about 18 percent on speculation that the company could be hiding something bad since attention tends to dissipate on Friday summer afternoons, but not with our CNBC viewers. But there are other factors that could play a role in its recent stock drop. Firstly, Palo Alto was added to the S&P 500 on June 20th, replacing Dish. It jumped 7 percent that day, so possibly coming down from that. Secondly, Microsoft announced in July it would expand its cybersecurity offerings, which won't affect this current quarter for Palo Alto, but could have longer-term ramifications. Lastly, competitor Fortinet's earnings were weak, and they guided lower on customer billings, which is a key metric for these cybersecurity firms, so that could be setting the tone for Palo Alto. But maybe all of this negativity is overblown. In Palo Alto's press release, they did say they would provide full year or fiscal year 2024 guidance and update medium-term financial goals through 2026. So maybe, maybe they're being considerate to analysts, giving them time to update their models and get great publicity since we keep talking about it. Is true. All right. Christina, thanks. It's time for today's three stock lunch now. And here with our trades is Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Gina, welcome. Let's start with Palo Alto. Uh, picking up on Christina's report, would you, you know, step in front of this uh, much ballyhooed earnings report tonight? So, you know, she really hit the nail on all the, the really big issues for Palo Alto Networks. This is one that Lido Advisors owns in their strategies, one that we've held for a long time. And the fly in the ointment for Palo Alto is that it is more overpriced than other um, stocks. So this is, but it is also a leader in its space. And yes, Microsoft has definitely shown um, some massive growth on their side. And they have a distribution network that you don't want to mess with. Um, so I think that that's going to be something for the future that Palo Alto Networks will have to contend with. They're also contending with, you know, competition from Fortnite, from, uh, from CrowdStrike and, you know, their, their other competitive landscape. But they do still remain the leader. Um, they are expected to slow. That is expected. And so I think that the secular play here is still there. Cybersecurity is not going away. If anything, it is getting the, the demand for it is going up and will probably continue to go up as we continue to build out more and more cloud-based um, uh, apps and infrastructure. Um, and you know, I think that it will just moderate at some point. And so what really has to kind of start to, th to, to find a space is, is the valuation. And that's the fly in the ointment. But it's still a strong long-term play. All right. Uh, we'll see if they can climb that, that uh, multiple wall, so to speak. At a quick programming note, Palo Alto Network CEO Nikesh Arora will sit down with Jim Cramer on Mad Money on Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern. We're looking forward to it. All right. Next up, let's go to Deer. Despite beating the street's earnings estimates earlier this morning, the stock is down 5% today on questions over how long the farm boom can last. Uh, what's the trade on Deer here, Gina? 
You know, dear, another one that we own, this is one that definitely has, you know, some challenges into 2024. It has been riding off of sort of the loosening of, of the, um, uh, you know, of the supply chain uh, crunch that they've had. So they were able to fulfill more, you know, fulfill more orders. And that is showing up with really strong growth. But 2024 is going to be a tougher year for them. Um, so I think that this is a shorter term play right now. And you do have there is there is some caution in the long run. All right, let's move on then to Ross Stores. Uh, that stock jumping after beating earnings Thursday night after the bell, showing that uh, off-price retailers, you know, TJX, Ross, they're all, they're looking pretty good right now. Would you, would you still buy it after this pop? So I think that this is still a play right now because I think the slowdown is going to continue. I mean, we talked about TJX last week, and I like this one as much as I like TJX, and they're about valued about the same. Um, you know, this one's at 21 times forward earnings. I think that that is reasonable right now. And I think that the demand for low-priced goods is going to remain as we continue to just soften. Um, but we are still seeing consumption, so I think it's a good play. All right, let's turn our attention, Gina, to uh, some of the stock draft picks. Uh, we have first NVIDIA. That was the first pick by WWE superstar Charlotte Flair. It's put her in first place. The stock is up more than 50% since the draft. Uh, it reports results next week. What do you think of NVIDIA? Well, so NVIDIA was high on our list. Remember, we were the number 10 draft. So by the time we got yeah, to, some of the to us, NVIDIA was, was, was long gone. Um, this, is a, this is a stock that has been, you know, everybody has loved this stock as the cloud has continued to build out. It got this second boom um, with the uh, generative AI craze, which um, also actually spurred real demand. Um, so, you know, I think that, that this, is a, this, this stock has... A secular story that's not going away, but it has definitely gotten ahead of itself. I think that the, the multiple here could be at risk, but sometimes expensive stocks stay expensive for a very long time in secular plays. So you do have to, you know, if, if, if you're riding this stock, keep riding it. So that brings us to PayPal. Are you going to keep riding it? It was y'all's first pick, Flynamic Duo with Diamond to Shields, down about 18%. That was our second draft. pick. Oh, oh, second pick. Thank second you. Second you. pick. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> this was the, you know, the, the leftover. You wanted a video, but it, yeah, it wasn't there. <laughs> what would you do with it now? Um, well, to be fair, the reason that we chose, so we chose Google as our first pick, and that was really a story about continuing ad demand and, and you know, um, strong play with the high multiple stocks while still having that defensive story. Pay PayPal was about getting a cheap entry into e-commerce. And if you look at PayPal, they had about a 13% growth in EPS last year, which is about their long-run long average. Um, this year, they're expected to turn in 19% growth, and that's with margins that are continuing to get hit because they're having more and more flow on, on, um, on Venmo which is a lower margin um, business. And I think a lot of folks are really punishing them for that. But their forward earnings are 11 times for 19% growth. And I think that that is, we, I still think that by the time we get to the end of the year, right, by the time we head into the Super Bowl, which is when this uh, time horizon ends, um, we will possibly have seen another rate hike. We've certainly, we will be at the end of rate hikes and we won't be seeing any kind of meaningful um, rate cuts by that point. So I think that the, the high, the high valuation stocks are going to be vulnerable, and this is one that's going to continue to deliver despite Apple Pay, uh, you know, comp competition, and despite margins, they're still going to turn in 18 to 19 percent uh, profit growth, 11 times. Believe me, they're going to be investors that are going to sit up and take notice. All righty, Gina, thank you very much. Have a great weekend, Gina Sanchez. Appreciate <laughs> it. 
Right, there's so many stories we'd still like to get to, but so little time left. We will power through as many as we can in closing time when we come right back. Welcome back. Just under three minutes to go and several more stories that we want to highlight today. So let's get right to it. We're tracking the Category 4 storm that's heading towards Southern California, Hurricane Hillary. It's expected to weaken before it reaches landfall, but will likely bring severe rains and flooding to the region this weekend and into early next week. If it somehow reaches California as a tropical storm, it would be a rarity. The last time that happened, Tyler, 19. Yeah, this is usually the dry uh, or drier season in California. You think of California getting wet sort of November, February, whatever, but uh, this would be a very, very much of an anomaly. I don't, in my memory, think of a Pacific hurricane. No, no. And so, you know, in Los Angeles could experience, and this is, I think, Sunday into Monday. Hawaii so. has had them. Some of the, uh, some of the uh, southern uh, Mexican coast has had them, but not, not The only thing not. I would say, officials in this whole zone, I don't know how we define this zone. Be well prepared. Yeah. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. But, you know, here's the warning. If it's going to be bad, it's, here it comes. All right. Perhaps the only time congestion is considered positive. The latest global traffic scorecard from the anal analytics firm Inrix found that what city, wait for it here, what city has the worst traffic congestion in the United States? Chicago mm. has the worst. But analysts say that's actually a good thing, sure, because congestion <laughs> signals economic <laughs> activity. Boston, number two, followed uh, there by, uh, I think it was New, New York. York city. Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., where the traffic has gotten worse and worse oh, over yeah. the years. They, they point out that only a couple of cities have come back above where they where they were some years ago, Chicago was one of them and Miami another where the traffic is actually worse than it was pre-pandemic. Well, the thing you have to remember is if population grows, by definition, traffic gets worse yeah. every year, especially once the millennials did the exodus to the suburbs thing. So you have to build more road capacity just to literally not make it worse all the time. Yeah. In the congestion pricing in New York City, we need to do a whole series we, on we that. We will see what happens with that. That's going to be interesting. Well, how about this for globalization? First, we heard about Beyonce causing inflation over in Sweden. Now Ozempic is causing rate cuts in Denmark. Here's why. Novo Nordisk, the Danish company behind the drug, is taking in so much U.S. dollars, converting them to kroner. It's raising the value of the Danish kroner and affecting its peg with the euro, forcing it to now have to cut rates. One drug is making that much difference. I love it. Uh, it's amazing. These little butterfly effects, you know, yeah, these the single actions effect. that can have There have been articles, in, I think there's one in the Times this morning about how they don't, re they know, they understand that the, the drug is very uh, popular. They don't really understand why it works. Yeah, it's creepy. And yet the yeah. people are talking about saving them hundreds of dollars on their food bills. Yeah. I mean, the enthusiasm is and boundless. All right, everybody, on that note, thanks for watching Power Lunch. See if the Dow can stay positive or turn positive. Closing bell starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.